Brothers and sisters, I would invite you to open up in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And as you were doing so, I would ask you to stand once more for the reading of God's holy word. We find ourselves this morning in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. And by God's grace, we are going to look at verses 8 through 20. So that is what I'm going to read in your hearing. This is the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years? I am afraid I, have may, I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Brothers, sometimes we repent of our repentance. You realize that? The the, the scriptures, they even speak of a proverb that sort of gets at this whole thing. We, We hear this, the dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. But of course, we should acknowledge here, Scripture is far more concerned with merely clean or filthy animals. The the picture of the proverb, is it not? It is one where someone persists in their foolishness. And this same idea applies to to Christians, specifically to those who make a profession of faith and then later at some time in history, they then repudiate their faith. And the fact is that people do this. People claim the name of Christ. So so they express some desire to know Christ, to serve Christ. They say that they trust Him, that they want to be His disciple. But then later on, the whole thing just sort of fades away. 
You may remember that Christ Himself on several occasions warns of this very thing, specifically of those who endure for a while. But then Christ says, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately they fall away. Christ also cautions this way, there are those who hear the Word, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves, Christ says, unfruitful. And so picture the scene. There are those who say they want to follow Christ, but when for whatever reason that no longer suits them, well, the dog turns around to go lick up its vomit. That once clean pig goes right back to rolling around in the filthy mud. What we call this is apostasy. And apostasy, beloved, it can happen to individual people. That is obviously true. But it can also happen to entire churches. Revelation alerts us to the tragic possibility of lampstands being removed. That is, of of local churches having the light of Christ burn out and cease to be churches altogether, regardless of what the sign out front says. It's even possible for entire institutions, entire denominations to go this route. And when that happens, whether it be uh, persons or churches or denominations, the banner that is writ large is Ichabod, right? For the glory has departed. Our brothers and sisters, I raise this specter because something similar is happening, or at least something is on the verge of similarly happening here with the churches of Galatia. Here's this group of churches. We don't know exactly how many they are, but they were planted by the Apostle Paul on one of his missionary journeys. And now he's writing to this group of churches uh, to be a bit anachronistic. We might refer to them in this sort of this Reformed Baptist network in Galatia. And Paul is writing to them specifically because they are flirting with giving up on the gospel altogether. It's important for us to see how dire this situation is. And I should add that this situation has been dire since Galatians 1.1. In other words, it's not like just all of a sudden things have begun to go sideways here in chapter 4. No. From, from the very beginning, the whole letter, Paul has been pleading with these churches to what? To abide in Christ. To stay the course to put one foot in front of the other and to continue to trust in the utter sufficiency of Christ crucified for sinners. And the reason that Paul has been pressing this upon their minds is because it is in Christ and Christ alone where you and I find forgiveness and freedom. In Christ is where we find life and liberty. It is in trusting Christ that we actually receive grace and that we meet God. But to turn from Christ, 
for that dog to turn around and begin to slurp up the vomit. Well, that's where chains and condemnation are found. And so Paul pleads. And I mean he pleads. He pulls out all the stops. He longs to persuade them that Christ is enough. And that you and I ought not to think even for a moment that we can justify ourselves before God by our own doings. Scriptures are clear that we must rest entirely on Christ and on His bloody cross. For it is in Christ's cross where the guilty sinner finds refuge. Now, because all of this is so vitally important, we have seen over the course of these four or so chapters, Paul plead with these churches a couple of different ways. He's done so personally and experientially and biblically and theologically. Let me clarify. If you go back and look at chapters 1 and 2, Paul pled with them personally. That is to say, he was reminding them of his own conversion to Christ. Then in chapter 3, he appealed to their experience. Were they, were, were the churches in Galatia, were they converted, Galatians 3.2, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That is the question, isn't it? After that, he turns to Scripture. To, to argue biblically. You'll remember, citing Abraham as an example, Paul showed how Abraham was justified by faith long before he was circumcised, long before Moses entered the scene, long before Abraham had done anything good or bad. Paul then turns his sights to the theological side of things. Still in chapter 3, Paul demonstrates how the Abrahamic covenant was rooted in promise, while the Mosaic covenant is built upon performance. And the key, of course, is that the Mosaic covenant cannot undo or thwart the Abrahamic promises. Why? Well, you remember, these promises were given to Abraham before Moses. And in Bible college, we all learn that Genesis comes before Exodus. Now zoom out real quick. Think of the four different fronts on which Paul has been waging this war. Personally, experientially, biblically, and theologically. Here's the question. What do all four of those have in common? You ready? They all clearly establish the fact that we are made right in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, going all the way back to Abraham, or even to Paul, or even now to these churches here in Galatia, Paul has been laboring to show that our right standing before God is based solely on account of God's grace revealed in Christ. And that we receive Christ and that grace simply by lifting up the empty hands of faith. So that's where we've been. But this morning, our passage will reveal now a fifth way that Paul will plead with them. Not just personally, experientially, and biblically, and, uh, and theologically, 
but now relationally. We will see Paul sort of shift a little bit in tone, in manner, in emphasis. He will now plead with them as their beloved brother, as their dear friend, as their faithful pastor. I want you to notice in the passage of Scripture that I just read in your hearing, it is more than obvious that Paul will gladly spend all his social capital in an effort to persuade these Christians to put no confidence in themselves. To once and for all tear up their resume and cast it far from them. And to rely on Christ. Or if you want all of this in a soundbite, something you can tweet, no turning back. That's the message. No turning back from Christ. Now as we prepare to unpack Paul's emotionally charged letter to these churches. I I want us as well to notice what sort of rises to the surface. And I say that because in this highly relational passage of Scripture, what immediately bubbles up as Paul pours out his heart is the character of the true Christian as well as the character of the true pastor. Let me say the same thing a little bit differently. This passage reveals both the heart of a Christian as well as the heart of a pastor. So that's what we're going to reflect upon this morning. The heart of a Christian and the heart of a pastor. When it comes to the Christian, I'm going to give you three words. Three words that that characterize the heart of a Christian. Let me give them to you now. Those words are lean and love and look. So the heart of a Christian is one that leans and loves and looks. First, the Christian will lean. What will he lean into? Nothing less than God's grace. Let me say that again. A Christian is not one who merely comes to church. A Christian is one who leans into God's grace. To really get our arms around this, it might be helpful to remember where the Galatians came from. Where were they, spiritually speaking, before the gospel entered their lives? Verse 8 gives a glimpse. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So if Galatians 4 gives us a glimpse... Acts 14 pulls back the curtain. You can go ahead and read it on your own this afternoon, but in Acts chapter 14, we discover that that these folks who now constitute the churches of Galatia, they were so enslaved to their paganism that when Paul and Barnabas showed up and actually began to preach the gospel to them, Paul and Barnabas could scarcely stop these guys from offering sacrifices to them. They were so entrenched in their paganism that they thought Paul and Barnabas were were Greek gods. You can read about it in Acts 14. And one other thing about paganism, paganism is slavery. It really is. 
which is a reality that, that you and I should keep at the forefront of our minds, especially since we as a society continue to march further and further into utter paganism. Paganism, like false worship, is slavery. That great theologian, Bob Marley, taught, or Bob Dylan rather, Bob Marley is a good theologian too. Bob Dylan did teach us, did he not? That you've got to serve somebody. And to worship anyone or anything other than the true and living God brings only bondage. This is why Paul laments at the end of verse 8 that you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. And brothers and sisters, the same is true of you and I. Left to ourselves, we will not be left to ourselves. But we will be enslaved. We will be enslaved to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. We will worship false gods. We will serve pseudo-saviors. And we will be led astray by bootleg Christs. That is what fallen humanity does. Remember, as rebels to God, fallen humanity does what? Suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, Romans 1. And in suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, they come to serve creatures rather than the Creator. You see? You, you suppress the truth of God and then you worship and serve what is false. So, so it's false worship, that's true, but it is worship nonetheless. But thankfully, in God's grace, He did not leave Galatians in their bondage, and neither has He left us in ours. But God has seen fit to publish His gospel abroad. Verse 9 testifies, But now that you have come to know God, I love this, or rather to be known by God. Paul can't even finish the sentence without clarifying what he means here. He means you don't, you don't in and of yourself come to know God. You don't think your way to God as if you have a big brain. You don't feel your way to God as if you have a, a sensitive heart to the divine. No, remember, you are in chains. You, you are enslaved. The only way that you come to know God is when God comes to know you. God has to come to you. And in Christ, that is exactly what God has done. He has condescended to us. And in doing so, God has, through Christ, forgiven us all our sins. He has promised us resurrection, life, and glory. And He has even brought us into His very own family that we might be His sons and daughters. But notice, it appears the Galatians are not satisfied. Paul, and by this point he is no doubt astonished, he asks in the middle of verse 9, how can you turn back again? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves do you want to be once more? And then he gives us a little clue. You observe days and months and seasons and years. You can sort of feel the tone, can't you? You were slaves. 
But God in Christ has set you free. You've been freed from your paganism. Freed from darkness. Freed from death. Freed from thinking that you can please God through your own vain efforts. You've been freed from all of this, but now you are turning back? Paul is baffled. How is it that you can turn from light and life to darkness and death? Paul said, it makes no sense. Verse 10, days, months, seasons, years, it, it probably refers to the Old Covenant Jewish calendar. It, when you read the Old Testament, you see things like feast days, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Weeks, uh, the, the, the Year of Jubilee. That, that's probably what all this stuff refers to. And it appears that these guys, they were really drawn to that sort of stuff. In fact, they were infatuated with it. They actually thought that because they could observe or adhere to some calendar, that they somehow were, I don't know, pleasing God? We know that they were all about this because the verb there at the beginning of verse 10 that the ESV translates as observe, it's actually very strong. It means to carefully observe a custom or tradition. To observe something scrupulously. They were all in. There was nothing casual about this. This is something that they were all together devoted to. This calendar. When in reality they should have been devoted to Christ. Today it would be the equivalent of Christians spending their time reading their horoscope discerning God's will through tarot cards, and actually putting stock in dream catchers. It's utter and complete paganism. None of it is good or true or beautiful. And more than that, none of it is pleasing in God's sight, nor does it help you or I gain standing before Him. The worst part all of these things will only enslave you. That's the thing, at least initially, about paganism that so many Christians don't see. And that is this. From the outside looking in, it looks innocent enough. But it's slavery. All of this stuff is like a massive eagle. A massive eagle that has talons, talons that will latch onto you and into you and carry you off and take you to places that you do not want to go. So what is the Christian to do in a world littered with paganism? We lean into God's grace. I recognize it in the sanctuary, we have people who have been Christians for a really, really long time. And we've got people who haven't been Christians for all that long. And then a lot of us who are in the middle. But you realize that whether we are talking about whether you've been a Christian for a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, or a lifetime, you do realize that our confession is all the same. Our confession, whether you've been a Christian for a day or for a hundred years, is simply this. All I have is Christ. Christ is enough for me. Christ 
is sufficient for me and my sins. And He is more than enough because He has lived the life I could never live and He has died the death that I deserve. On that cross, He paid for my sin. He placated the wrath of God and all His righteousness is now given to me by grace. And the point is, church, that is true today. It was true yesterday and it will be true tomorrow. You and I never outgrow or graduate from grace. And so Paul is pleading with these churches, don't turn back. Lean in. Lean into the grace of God. Let me show you another way that Christians are marked off. It's by their love. And specifically, their love for God's gospel. Let's be very clear. Christians love God's gospel. Consider for a moment how the Galatians initially received Paul and his message. Verses 13 and 14 reveal to us that Paul showed up into this region unexpectedly, it would appear, at least from his perspective. Apparently, he's suffering from some sort of ailment. And as a result, Paul found himself sidelined in Galatia, trying to recover from whatever had put him on his back. But while there, as the good Calvinist that Paul was, he made the most of God's providence in his life. And so he preached the the gospel to them. Look at how the Galatians responded. Verse 14, Though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Catch this. They didn't resent Paul as he came sort of hobbling into town in need of a gurney. Neither did they consider him a burden. Actually, they loved him. And not only that, this is key, they loved his message. They sat and listened. And they warmly received the gospel of grace as Paul sat there and proclaimed it from his hospital bed. The thought of God entering into His creation through His Son to actually rescue and redeem those who were by nature utter rebels, as they sat and heard that for the first time, it took their breath away. They heard that that Christ, the only truly righteous and just person in all the history of the world, they heard that Christ would die for their sin. For them. And it shook them. They listened with bated breath of Christ's glorious resurrection from the dead. And how Christ makes such a promise to all His followers that they too would be resurrected from the dead. And again, as as the Galatians are hearing this for the first time, they were undone. They, They saw their heinous sin. And they saw the glorious Savior who was offered to them. And in those moments, All they wanted was Christ. They would gladly give up all they've ever had or all they would ever acquire if they could only have Jesus. 
But that was then. And this is now. Now they have itches that need to be scratched. Their minds are occupied with all kinds of religious things. This, this whole idea of the prospect of, of circumcision. They're introduced to Moses, this mediator of the Old Covenant, and, and he looks like quite a leader and deliverer of God's people. Maybe we should follow him. They're enraptured with God's law and how it was given to Moses in a cloud of fire. And, and how they, they might be able to, to obey God's law and earn God's blessing as a result. The thought of feast days and holy people and religious calendars, it all sounded so, well, spiritual. But after all, Jesus, as well as his first disciples, they were all Jewish. So, so shouldn't we too all strive to be Jewish like Jesus and like his disciples? And just like that, the bright sun of the gospel has been eclipsed by the flame of a candle. How does this happen? How do people go sideways? How do we shelve the gospel? How do we become so infatuated with the Bible and yet not Christ? How does that happen? Here's my suspicion. And I think at some level it was true for the Galatians then and even more so for us now. Let me put it to you this way. I am persuaded that perhaps our single greatest danger is simply this. We are prone to grow bored with God. We grow bored with God. We grow bored with His gospel. We grow bored with His grace. We've heard it once. We've heard it a thousand times. It just becomes old hat. It's nothing more than white noise. Just like waterbeds were trendy, so is the gospel. And let's be honest. Waterbeds are no longer in vogue. And so when someone comes along, like they did in Galatia, and they say, hey, you guys, Christ is great. But have you heard about this whole Jewish calendar thing? Or today, when someone comes along and says, hey, Christ and his gospel is fantastic. But have you heard about the prayer of Jabez? Or this new manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Or this fresh word from our apostle over here? What happens? What do we do? And for so many, they chase after it. They go headlong into whatever it is. And I think it is because they have grown bored. Bored with God and bored with His gospel. In evangelicalism, there seems to always be talk about growing in grace. But what is often missed in that discussion is our love for Christ and the gospel. In other words, we will often, as Christians, evaluate whether or not we are growing in grace based upon what? Well, how many hours are you spending in prayer? How many chapters of the Bible are you reading? 
How many extracurricular sort of church events are you a part of? Or how much do you give? Or, or how many less cuss words have you said this week? Whatever it is. We've, we've all got sort of these metrics. But we never ask, are we actually growing in our love for Christ? Is that not the single greatest evidence of growing in grace? Christian, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ more now than you did five years ago? Or have you begun to turn back? To fall in love with other things? To become like those in Ephesus, in Revelation 2, who left their first love. doesn't mean they quit, lo- they quit loving things. Just as we will all worship, so we will all love. The question is, what are we loving? I told you Paul is seeking to woo the churches to remain in Christ. He's done so by reminding them of the chains that they have lost and the freedom that they have found in Christ. In all, in all of this, we've seen the heart of a Christian. Christians lean, Christians love, and finally, Christians look. They don't just look to Christ. They look like Christ. Here's what I mean. To grow in grace is to grow in Christ Why? Because Christ is the incarnation of grace. Or to say it another way, we are saved by Christ, we are saved in Christ, we are saved for Christ, and we are saved to Christ. So that when you and I bear fruit and mature in the faith and grow in grace, what that looks like is you and I more fully and more faithfully coming to resemble Jesus Christ. This is surely Paul's concern with the churches. Because of their obsession with Moses and the law and the old covenant, they are no longer resembling Christ, His grace, and the new covenant owing to their devotion to that which is by nature deficient, their growth in grace has been stunted. Rather than maturing, they are retarding. Or to use Paul's language in verse 19, he says, My little children, from whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? This idea of Christ being formed in you. What does that mean? We can say it a couple of different ways. It means to see and savor Jesus Christ. It's the idea of walking with Him and worshiping Him. To, To have Christ formed in you is this deep and abiding sense of your utter need for Christ and your love for Christ. To have Christ formed in you, again Galatians 4.19, is simply to grow in Christ-likeness. I actually think that, that John the Baptist's confession 
And so they think that John the Baptist's confession really encapsulates all of this. Remember what he says in John 3.30? John the Baptist says, He must increase. I must decrease. That's what it means to have Christ formed in you. More of Christ, less of me. To, to which we might say, well, well fair enough. But, but in all this, what's Paul's worry? What, what's got Paul so worked up? Well, look at the language of verse 19 again. He, <clears throat> he says, I am in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Again. It's as if their first birth was a false birth. Like, like a mother who labors for hours and hours and days only to give birth to a stillborn. So Paul tragically worries for the Galatians wondering if their conversion to Christ was really in fact wrought by the Spirit. And the reason that Paul is wondering this, the reason that he is worried, is because they are no longer following Christ. They've begun to turn back. Their resemblance to the Savior is now scant. This group of churches are starting to look a lot less like Jesus and a lot more like the world around them. A lot more like how they used to be. So just in case we don't miss the forest for the trees, those in Galatia, they've been led out from their paganism by Christ to the gospel of grace. But now they are on the verge of trading their freedom in Christ for change. And so Paul, who is loving them and laboring over them, he is seeking to warn and woo. And in it, we see the heart of a Christian. A Christian leans into God's grace. A Christian loves God's gospel. And a Christian looks like God's son. But I'm worried, Paul says. I'm worried because you are starting to not look like a Christian at all. You're starting to look like a dog with its head turned around, eyeballing, eyeballing that putrid vomit. Paul's saying, don't go there. Don't turn back. He's pleading with them. And I should hasten to add, the desire that Paul has to see these Galatians press on in their faith and not falter, it all arises from the heart of a pastor. This is why he's willing to warn and woo. This is why he takes up the pen. Because he truly loves these congregations. Which means in a lot of ways, Galatians, specifically chapter 4 here, in a very unique way in the New Testament, maybe may only resembling sort of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians and Galatians 4 give us a very unique window into the heart of the Apostle Paul. And so then what I want to do with the remaining time I have, I know what time it is, I'll be brief. I want us to reflect not just upon the heart of a Christian, but the heart of a pastor. 
And so just as I drew your attention to three words when it comes to what characterizes a Christian, let me now draw your attention to three words that characterize a faithful pastor. The first word is concern. A true pastor has a concern for the people of God. And, and I don't even know that that needs a lot of explanation. It almost jumps off the pages, doesn't it? Verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In verse 12, he pleads with them as brothers. Verse 20, he adds, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Like ancient Israel, wandering in the desert, longing to return to Egypt, all the melons and leeks and onions. So these churches long to return to their former chains that they found in paganism. And as Paul sees this whole thing unfold, it absolutely shatters his heart. And that is because true shepherds love to see their children, 3 John 4, walking in the truth. And when they're not, faithful pastors weep. Here's a second word, committed. A true pastor is committed to preach the gospel. Verses 13 and 14 bring this out. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, it is true that people will often scratch their heads at these verses, wondering what on earth is this bodily ailment? I'll tip my hand. It seems more than apparent to me that it was some sort of physical illness. Some have suggested that Paul contracted malaria. Others suspect that there was literally something wrong with his eyeballs, citing verse 15 and the Galatians' willingness to, to gouge out their own eyes. But that's not exactly what I want to zero in on here. What is noteworthy, I think, is that despite his illness, whatever it was, Paul was committed to do what? To preach. Think about it for a second. Think about the situation. It didn't matter where he was. It didn't matter who was in front of him. It didn't even matter if he was suffering from some debilitating ailment. Paul was determined to preach the gospel. Is that not the heart of a true pastor? The prophet of Jeremiah puts it this way, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. The, the message of Christ must go forth. Or as Paul would tell the Corinthians, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The, the flavor is, I can't not say something. And I can't not say something because souls are perishing. And the only way that a perishing soul is rescued is if that soul lays hold of Christ. And the only way a soul will lay hold of Christ is if that soul knows of a Christ who's willing to be laid hold of. Christians are to be presented, Colossians 1.28, mature in Christ. Meaning that Christians are to grow in their knowledge of Christ. Their love for Christ. 
their obedience to Christ and their joy in Christ. And in all of this, the means that God has ordained for Christian growth is preaching. It's essential. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that we are merely saved through preaching. That's true, we are. But we are also sanctified through preaching. This is why the Word, no matter the cost, must be heralded. This was the heart of Paul. He was committed to preaching. And I would simply say, may God in His kindness give us truckloads of such men today. Not only does the world need them, but the church needs them. Last word now. The heart of a pastor is seen in how he is concerned and committed and now courageous. Courageous enough to say hard things. Paul asks in verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You can almost feel it, can't you? The Galatians are, are pulling back. Well, why are they pulling back? Well, because Paul, like any pastor worth his salt, is willing to raise his voice if necessary. He's willing to not just comfort, but also confront. And to have one without the other is a recipe for disaster. Let's be clear. Paul was committed to the truth, no matter the cost. We've seen this throughout his letter to the Galatians. You will remember back in chapter 2, he confronted Peter publicly to his face in the middle of the church softball game. Paul is determined to call balls and strikes. That's one of the traits, by the way, that separates pastors from peddlers, shepherds from snakes, leaders from liars. A faithful pastor is one who will say what you do not always want to hear. And you should thank God for that uncomfortable gift. Unfortunately, though, all too often we see the opposite in pulpits all across our land. Sin is no longer called sin. Repentance is deemed optional rather than necessary. The gospel in a multitude of ways is dumbed down, sin is coddled, and the church is now a place of entertainment, not worship. And if you and I were to ask why, I would suspect that it is all in an effort to put warm rumps in the bottom of chairs. Apparently the greatest commandment these days is thou shalt not offend. So many pastors won't even risk stepping on toes Not to say anything about stepping on ankles. But redeeming grace, may I submit to you that in this hour we need stone, not sand. Courage, not cowardice. Conviction, not kowtowing. To adopt the words of J.C. Ryle, we don't need a vague, foggy, misty Christianity. A jellyfish, if you like. Instead, Ryle would say, We need a Christianity with bone, muscle, and sinew. I wonder what he would say today. And of course, we see this from Paul. He is willing to say hard things, even if it results in the claws coming out. And if you were to step back back and ask why, why do we need such men today? Does not Galatians 4 answer? Remember, here are a whole group of churches who are on the verge of what? Turning back. 
of forsaking Christ. So that with every step that they take toward Moses and circumcision and the Old Covenant and Jewish rituals and their own vain efforts, with every step that way, they are taking two steps away from Christ and His Gospel and His grace. So Paul, with tears in his eyes, he pleads with them. Don't trade your freedom for chains. Don't think that you can somehow, even for a moment, by who you are or what you do or what you don't do, don't think you can add to or supplement the work of Christ. Don't move. Don't budge. Keep your eyes firmly fixed upon Christ. For in Christ there is life. Well, brothers and sisters, I can't help but plead with you along those same lines. Christ is enough. Christ has done it all. In Christ there is forgiveness and cleansing and hope and righteousness and eternal life and just about a million other graces. Then why would you turn away? Why would you look anywhere else? Or if you don't mind me saying, vomit is vile. Why would you go and lap it up? Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, praying for the grace of your spirit to uphold us. We recognize that in so many ways, and, and perhaps in ways that we aren't even fully aware, nor can we adequately articulate, really, our entire life is in your hands. Our salvation rests upon you. You are our Father. You are our God. You are our Savior. So we pray that even this day right now, Your Spirit would be cultivating within our hearts a fresh love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us from turning back. And where we are prone to, build massive walls to keep us from going in those directions. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.